In this episode, I visit with Charles Thomas, the Market Planning Director for LexisNexis Risk Solutions. We take a look at the current state of due diligence, third-party enforcement actions, and compliance programs. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Charles Thomas. Uh, Charles, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been with LexisNexis for quite a few years now. Um, but prior to that, my my background was with another similar provider in the due diligence and anti-bribery and corruption space. So I come into this world from the risk side of things more than the compliance side of things. Um, originally started many, many years ago, um, an outfit called Kroll, working in a business development, a sales role, um, as a you know, young man around town. Um, and that gradually kind of morphed into more of a consulting role, got more consultative and more involved with other things. And I got more and more interested in the idea of instead of doing what I was at the time, which was sort of personnel and employment vetting, I got more and more interested in the vetting and due diligence on companies on business relationships so gradually shifted away from that risk side into third-party risk third-party due diligence um and then as i morphed into very much focusing on the due diligence side of anti-bribery and corruption um and for the last probably 10 years or so i've been in, in similar sort of roles um strategy and direction looking at how best to answer the problems that companies face globally so over the past uh, 12 months, um, what have been some of the biggest challenges or top issues your clients faced? And, and I don't really want to go back to uh, one year ago when we were all in lockdown. But as we moved into to Q4 and Q1 of 2021, things began to open up a little bit. Uh, did the challenges change? Did they morph a little bit? Or uh, what do you see from your perspective? I think a lot of it was that, some of the challenges that were left behind by the before times or whatever we're calling them now um, continued. And one of the big challenges that really continued was that of change. So a lot of people saw during the pandemic that their suppliers or their supply chain was hit with a change. So that change may have been the factories being shut down in, in China. Um, I was just on the phone this morning with one of my colleagues in Hong Kong, and he was saying how lovely it was that the skies were so blue. And the skies are so blue because factories have been shut down. Um, that knocks on the supply chain. Now, as we come out of that and as we come out of the pandemic and things open up and things, people are trying to catch up, businesses trying to catch up with where they were before, um, there's now that sort of pressure to change quickly. So it may have been that you had a, a supplier previously that shut down has gone out of business, you've got to replace them. You've got to bring someone else on board. It may be that you're actually needing more capacity. You need to increase manufacturing capacity. The, that boat, the ship getting shut, stuck in the Suez Canal didn't really help with that either. People have knock-on effects on the supply chains that making them have to change things and make them have to change things at short notice and under pressure. And under when, when compliance and due diligence gets put under pressure – is there the temptation to maybe cut a corner, take a bit more risk than perhaps you would normally? Unfortunately, businesses are maybe so desperate that they're trying to catch up that they might think, actually, yeah, we could take a little risk on this. Let's just do it a little differently. Let's go with a slightly higher risk supplier 
um, because they said they can do you know, provide us the moon on a stick. So I think that change is one of the big things that's happened over the last 12 months or so, and change is continuing to happen as we open up. Charles, that's a really interesting point that you started with, which is not new challenges, not challenges really related to the pandemic specifically, but challenges, let me see if I got this right, challenges left behind. And many of those challenges did not go away. We did perhaps put them on the back burner, but I'm not sure many compliance practitioners are, are really thinking back to, you know, a year ago I had these challenges and then then for a year I had a new set of challenges, but now I have to think through uh, the challenges that were there, but I have to think through in a compressed time frame because we have to open up and uh, face all of the other things that came out in the past 12 months. That's a very interesting insight. Yeah, and I think tied, tied into that, if you look at look at things sort of with an international lens and look at how everyone's trying to open up, you're having to do the same challenges. You're having to do your due diligence. You're having to do the risk assessment and the compliance assessments. You're having to do it internationally, but you're having to do it internationally without being able to go there. So for the last 12 months or so, people haven't been able to do those site visits. They haven't been able to go and do in-person interviews. So, so much more has to be taken, not on trust, but on there's so much more importance placed on data and information when you can't make those personal interactions. I mean, we've all sat on endless Zoom calls, Zoom and Teams calls, and they're great, and they're, they're, they really are a dynamic way of doing business. But I think there's there's been a change there that people have had to adapt to, and it's adapting to a new way of working and a new way of doing that due diligence, information gathering, and relationship building remotely. And uh, people took a while to adapt to that, and I think that, that's now catching up. I also appreciated your remarks around, uh, I think it was the ever again in the Suez Canal, because I'm not sure many people thought about what happens if you cannot physically get your supplies across the globe. Uh, has that had an impact in your part of the world as well? Um, yeah, it's it's actually had an impact. I think it had an impact globally, that one. It's just, you know, it's, it's, people thought it's, it's one ship stuck in a canal. And it was strangely comical to see this great big ship stuck in a canal and there was lots of jokes and fun but actually the, the commercial impact of that wasn't the one ship it was the traffic jam the line of ships backing up waiting to get through both ways that had a two probably a two or three week knock-on effect now that two or three week knock-on effect means that you might not have had the component you need to finish your production and that slows down your production if your production goes into somebody else's supply chain that slows down their supply chain and I think that's where people had to look at how quickly do we need to change our plans? Do we need to source another provider? Do we need to maybe fly some cargo in to fill that stopgap? If we do, then we've obviously got the trade cargo element of, of as well of are we doing the correct checks and the correct procedures on that trade piece to fill the gap? So, yeah, it had, it had a, a strangely big knock-on effect. I mean, I've got one sort of example. I'm a cyclist and some friends of mine who run a bike shop locally. They've seen a knock-on effect that they're not a actually able to get the parts needed to fix customers' bikes. So it's trickled down that the distributors can't sell the parts to the bike shop and the bike shop can't sell those parts to the end consumer just because a ship got stuck in a canal. And it's happening across multiple industries in multiple places. I guess when you that, uh, then uh, factor that in with the exponential increase in bike sales, 
certainly here in the United States, but I would assume in Europe as well, you've got a true imbroglio around a lack of supplies and uh, difficulty of getting even parts that have been manufactured now. Yeah, well, again, slightly going back to that point about factories in China shutting down, factories in Taiwan shutting down, um, for a period of a month or two, a month or three, things weren't made. Um, and now think the ramping up is slowly happening, but that's actually, as you say, coincided with a, a massive increase in demand. But on, on, a, on a similar basis, the PPE, personal protective equipment market, had this exactly the same issue. All of a sudden, there's a huge spike in demand for a particular type of product because of the pandemic. Um, and a lot of that product is, is or was and still is made in places that were shut down and that were locked down. So quite, quite a few people had to look alternative suppliers, alternative methods of procuring that inf- in, in that stuff. But, and again, that goes back to the sense of urgency. You can't delay on ordering uh, protective equipment in the pandemic. You have to order it now. Does that sense of urgency lead to a, an enhanced risk of doing something wrong or cutting a corner or procuring the wrong product from the wrong people in the wrong way? Yes, I think it does. Uh, let me change the focus just a little bit because uh, in 2020, we had two of the largest international uh, anti-corruption settlements. We had Airbus early in the year before the pandemic hit, and then we had Goldman Sachs uh, in, I believe, October of last year. And many commentators focused on the monetary penalty because they were two, the two largest. But for me, the more interesting aspect was the international aspect. We had cooperation uh, in Airbus, the United States, France, and Britain with uh, Goldman Sachs. We had a wider variety of countries, including uh, Singapore, UAE, Hong Kong, uh, as well as uh, Britain and the United States. Uh, and so I was wondering if I get, might get sort of your thoughts on, on the global enforcement of international anti-corruption regimes or laws and how that is really impacting uh, what you do with your clients. Um, I think the first thing on that is that the word cooperation is coming up so much more. I mean, it used to be seen always that a prosecution would happen in isolation. So there'd be an FCPA prosecution, there might be a prosecution in the UK, there might be just different prosecutions. Now they're happening much more as a, a collegiate, collaborative approach, which should and hopefully is making people set up and take notice. Um, you're no longer just going to be looking for the FCPA. You're going to be looking at Sapander. You're going to be looking at the UK Bribery Act. You're going to be making sure that you are covered for all those eventualities. And interestingly, actually, I'm going to touch on Sapander if I can, the French law, relatively recent French law. Um, really interestingly, the way that that permits uh, almost an investigation of your compliance program, it's placing ever more importance on having a good compliance program in place, having good established practices and procedures. Um, the UK Bribery Act has its failure to prevent, which is really powerful. I think Sapander maybe goes even further in that you can be in trouble if your program isn't good enough, even if there hasn't really been anything, any breach of that program. So what seems to be happening is... Um, Countries are developing ever stricter and better laws. And Sapander, I think, is probably the, the, the most recent big example, if you will, to do that. Um, and we're now seeing that collaboration between regimes, between regulatory regimes. Those two things combined make it more of an issue. Um, it's also now seen as, thankfully, sort of almost 
it's a mature industry in a way. For many years, it was often seen that that ABC compliance, um, anti-bribery corruption, was was the smaller sibling to anti-money laundering or sanctions regimes in the financial crime world. That is actually moving away now. We're seeing much more importance placed on having those programs and policies in place at a high level. It's not just an an afterthought within a business. It's now put up at the top and put at the front of it. And a large part of that ties into a real international move. And a lot of it's coming from the European Union. A lot of it's coming um, from investment pressure to tie in anti-bribery and corruption due diligence and regulation with environmental, social and governance, um, the ESG side of uh, due diligence and processes as well. So there's multiple pressures from different regulatory regimes that mean it's ever more important to be doing the right thing. And multiple pressures hopefully are now making that change happen. And we are seeing more people really take more notice of compliance and not see it you know, in some cases, something they have to do, it's something they want to do because it makes them a better business. And now we're going to take a short break. Let me follow up on that point and ask, uh, particularly around ESG, do you see your clients and customers at uh, LexisNexis Risk Solutions uh, wanting more information on ESG topics and really diving into or drilling down in a way they didn't perhaps uh, before the pandemic because they understand the potential reputational damage of having a third party on the sales side or even a supplier who might uh, go against uh, that uh, uh, prevailing wisdom? Uh, Yes. I mean, put simply, yes. I think I read somewhere the other day about front page theory, and I like the idea of front page theory, which is you don't want anything to happen in your business that puts you on the front page. No, you want to be on the business pages. That's fantastic. But no business wants to be on the front page of a newspaper. Um, and we're definitely seeing more demand for or more interest in the the non – it's almost like, it's not the non-checking-the-box side of compliance, but it's the reputational side of compliance, which is much harder to codify because reputation is very individual to each individual company. It's very much something that's particular to you as a business. But there is a massive increase in – Questions, concerns, issues, and a large part of my role is to take that noise from from the market, from our clients, and take it back into the business and say, well, how, how do we help our clients solve this problem? And increasingly, it's the, the ESG side of things is seen as, I mentioned earlier, that of doing good business or being a good business. Um, it's seen as a way that you can take your compliance program, which Maybe you're, maybe you're just making sure you're not doing you're, you're doing correct business with state-owned entities, for example, as part of your due diligence. But shouldn't you also be looking to see if they've been involved in any human rights violations or environmental breaches or they've got any labor workforce violations? Um, if you're having raw materials made in a factory in Bangladesh, you need to make sure that the working conditions are good. And the reason you need to make sure the working conditions are good is – Whenever you have that disparity between cost of production and cost of sale, at each stage of that disparity is the risk or the almost the enticement for someone to do wrong. Um, I use the example of gold quite often because it's an easy way of explaining it. But if you look at gold, gold does not come from particularly nice places. Gold is dug out of big, dirty holes in the ground by people who, if we're honest, aren't paid enough. 
um, for the product that they're mining. That's then taken out, it's smelted, it's melted down, it's made into a raw material. And at every stage of that value-adding life cycle, there's a risk for someone to take a bribe. There's a risk for someone to request a bribe. There's a risk for someone to look the other way when a customs declaration is made, for example. Um, So if the environmental and social side of your due diligence captures those risks and issues, it can actually help improve the end product and help improve the life cycle of the end product. And ultimately, increasingly, we're seeing consumer-led pressure back to that front page theory. If you're on the front page because your products were made by child labor in a sweatshop, that's really bad news. If you're on the front page because you've won an award for ethical sourcing and supply chain in the business pages, that's good news. And actually, people are increasingly willing to spend more money on good products. Um, so there's a, there's a there's almost a business incentive to do good compliance because you can actually, if we're being callous, your business will be more successful if you make spend more on compliance because people will buy more of whatever you're selling. Charles, so let me change the focus a little bit to uh, into the future and ask uh, how COVID nineteen over the past year as if any change, the LexisNexis Risk Solutions approach to managing third-party risks? Um, I think for us at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, it hasn't had a huge impact on how we do things. It has had a huge impact on how we, um, weirdly, how we engage with our clients. And in some ways, we've actually been more engaged because we've been able to spend more time with them. Um, It sounds strange to say that by working remotely, but there's been more engagement because everyone has been available because everyone's been working from home. So rather than us all traveling and flying around conferences and events, we've been able to do that from a product and solution perspective. It's really made us look at the, the increased traffic of information. Um, Back to the point I made a little bit earlier that due diligence um, hasn't been able to or due diligence processes have not been able to call on the resources of boots on the ground investigative work in country it's shown the massive value and the increased value of highly accurate open source intelligence information that is reliable actionable um, defensible and is available uh, and that that's been one of the key things there that information availability has become even ever more important because human source intelligence has been ever more difficult. Where do you see uh, not simply due diligence, but perhaps uh, compliance and ESG in 2025 and beyond? I think they're going to come much, much more closely together. I think it's going to stop. It's going to stop a a case of box checking for compliance. I think some of compliance has been seen as um, following the process, check the box and move on. I think bringing ESG into the fold makes it much more about a value-based decision. So there's a risk-based approach to know if you're doing business with bad people. But bringing in that ESG piece places more on the ethical and moral values of who you're doing business with. So not just the corporate and business relationship of who you're doing, who you're working with, but the the ethical side of it. So ethics and compliance are going to already, they're already hugely interlinked, but I think they're going to become more and more interlinked. And there will almost certainly be more regulation placed on the ESG side. And that's going to grow and that's something that's going to only continue. Um, 
Beyond that, I think the only other thing really is back to that point about international cooperation. Um, for many years, it was seen that the FCPA was the only anti-bribery and corruption law in the world. Um, I think we've seen in recent years new laws that are coming out on, or new interpretations and new new, ad- new approaches to anti-bribery and corruption, which you could argue are actually stronger and are more aimed at stopping bribery and corruption. And obviously, there's the element within the FCPA that it's, it's that focus on foreign public officials and foreign uh, bribery and corruption. The UK Bribery Act doesn't really make that distinction. Um, it's not about state. It's about whether or not you're doing business with good people, be they state or private, and be they foreign or domestic. Um, so we're, we're a UK-listed entity. I obviously have to adhere to the UK Bribery Act. I know that if I pay a bribe or if I receive a bribe, I'm equally culpable. Um, and I think that that regulatory change, again, drives the behaviour change, which again, tied into the ESG side, drives the moral and ethical change, all of which moves us towards the concept of being a better business, uh, being better at business relationships, not just from a fiscal perspective, but from that ethical and moral perspective. And hopefully, um, if we could get, get that further, it's going to help drive the corruption away. It's going to help make sure that the money that should be going to build schools or hospitals or healthcare or infrastructure isn't lying in the pockets of a few people. It's actually getting into the development that should be that it should be getting into. You know, that's an uh, interesting way uh, you phrase that. Let me see if I can uh, uh, maybe rephrase it sort of from the FCPA to the Bribery Act with its failure to prevent a supplement due with uh, actually have to, to show the effectiveness of your compliance program. It seems to me that uh, certainly the UK Bribery Act and supplement due may have built upon uh, the FCPA, but they've, uh, as you suggest, uh, actually, uh, I think, strengthened international anti-corruption uh, enforcement. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. Um, I think it is entirely fair. I think if you if you look at the, the UK Bribery Act, the, the fact that it's state or private doesn't matter. The fact that it's bribe payer, bribe receiver doesn't matter. It's just bribery and corruption is bad. Let's try and stop it. Seppender, as you say, goes a little step further. Not only let's try and stop it, but let's make sure you've got the policies and procedures to actually do that. So in a way, I think every time you see a new law coming on, um, I think we've maybe learned from past regulations of how we could make it better, how we can make the enforcement better, make the landscape better. And then ho- hopefully the ultimate, the ultimate goal of this is, is not to fine people. It's not to send people to jail. It's to try and reduce bribery and corruption. And I think, as you say, that the UK Bribery Act and the Sepander have actually maybe done more to change behaviours than perhaps the FCPA does. Could it be time to look at that and think, could we? Could the FCPA be improved? I think almost every law everywhere could be improved, surely. Um, if I took, if I had one criticism of Sapander, it's that it's not as extraterritorial as the UK Bribery Act, for example. It's a fantastic law, but it's the primarily French side of it, whereas the UK Bribery Act has more extraterritorial reach. Who knows, maybe the next, the next refreshed law that comes out will take both of those pieces into account and we'll get something even better. Let's hope we do. Charles, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on the topics you've touched on or information on LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Where could they go? Um, thanks for that, Tom. I think, obviously... 
the first place I'd point people is towards our, our website, which is risk.lexisnexis.com. Um, huge amount of information on there, uh, insights, resources. We have host blog articles. We host our own podcasts as well. So as well as your excellent podcast, we have ours. I think everyone has a podcast these days. Um, if not, if anyone wants to contact me via LinkedIn, more than happy to take any questions or answers there. Um, the other thing is there are now Thank, because of social media, there are now so many brilliant people out there broadcasting. There's loads of opportunities to listen to other things. And I'm going to give a little shameless plug to a dear old friend of mine's podcast, if I can, um, which is the Great Women in Compliance podcast from Mary Stone and Lisa Fine. Um, that it's just inspiring, brilliant stuff. Listen to theirs as well. Um, always worth always worth plugging your friends. I think in that way, in that respect. And you can listen to them on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, so Charles, this has been a ton of fun and, uh, I hope that perhaps I could call upon you in the future when, uh, we might be able to discuss, uh, where we are, uh, going down the road. Absolutely. would love to, would love to look forward to it. Thanks so much for having me on. Hello everyone. This is Tom Fox. Again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA compliance report, a production of the compliance podcast network. We have a great new show on the Compliance Podcast Network called Mo Forecast, which is a podcast of the law firm of Morrison and Forrester, hosted by James Kukios. Check that out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also, we have a new podcast, Survive and Thrive, where with my co-host, Courtney Nordrum, we take a look at compliance disasters, some of the lessons learned and red flags missed, plus what you can do to avoid them going forward. I know you'll enjoy this great new series, Survive and Thrive, which posts every other Tuesday on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.